Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Jason. I'm Conrad. Welcome gentlemen. The Myth Makers is released on vinyl today by Demon Music Group. Another absolutely beautiful cover and the discs themselves have a very striking Trojan sunset motif on them. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's another absolutely fantastic release from them. Um, in terms of the story, Conrad, I think you said you're coming to this one for the first time? Yeah, yeah, it's a new one for me. Like a lot of the historicals and miss, especially stuff with miss, a lot of missing episodes, um, I generally won't have encountered it. I think I read the Target novel uh, in my teens. Um, but apart from that, it's new Doctor Who time. So I watched the Loose Cannon reconstructions. Um, so yeah, very interesting for me. New to our first time. How about you? How about you guys? Yeah, I think uh, the historicals that don't exist, or the, the stories that don't exist, it's, it's harder to get around to listening to them um, because there's so many new big finishes and uh, podcasts to listen to that when you already sort of feel you know a story. But yeah, I haven't listened to this one for ages and it, it felt like coming to, to a new story. Um, but uh, Jason, you've been doing your Twitter pilgrimage. Uh, yeah, so let me just uh, do the lengthy, overly long introduction before I get back to my MythMaker story, which is also <laughs> going to be overly long, so fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> so I've been um, on Twitter since late October 2020, going through the classic series in order, two episodes a night. So October 26th was Unearthly Child and Cave of Skulls, and I've just been going straight through ever since. So last night I did State of Decay parts one and part two. I know both of you have been following me on Twitter and commenting yeah. along the way, so I definitely appreciate the support <laughs> of both of you. This is the first time that I've actually met Conrad face-to-face. Yeah. And I feel somewhat inadequate because one of you is literally a professional voice artist and the other one has a very rich <laughs> radio host voice. And I'm here with my nasally Brooklyn wine, so I feel like I'm the odd man out on this podcast. Uh, so... I am just having a passionate love affair with season 18 right now. In fact, even Meglos, which is the weakest story of the season, last time I watched Meglos, I hated it, and I wrote a scorching review for the for the ratings guide, which is not yet posted, fortunately. But when I watched it the other, the other week, I loved it. It was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's not a good story, but there's just enough that's entertaining about it, like Brodadak and Grugger, the double act, and Jacqueline Hill. There's so many different entertaining elements in a bad story that it becomes more entertaining than bad. Mm. So I'm in such a happy mood that I was even able to enjoy Meglo. So you can imagine how much better State of Decay is. <laughs> and then I've got Warrior's Gate coming up, Keeper of Kraken. I've got Legopolis and Castor Valva coming up. This is about as good as it's ever going to get, considering what's next out the pipeline. But it's a very good week for the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, DR Who Pilgrimage. And that's Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels on Twitter. I just want to do a quick detour with you guys because my kid is in the room. So the entirety of Doctor Who I've gone through in nine months. So even though I'm now five years past Talons of Wang Chiang, it's still fairly fresh in my head because it was only about four weeks ago, pilgrimage time. So, you know, famously in Talons of Wang Chiang, the Doctor takes Leela to the theater and they hear... Uh, a, a song being performed in the music hall. Mm. So I've got an 11-year-old daughter who's on the other side of the computer, and she says the thing that every 47-year-old father wants to hear. 
Daddy, you know the words to the Daisy Bell song, right? It turns out that song is currently trending on TikTok right now. Someone has done a bizarrely computerized, distorted version of the song, and people are singing along to it and matching up bizarre audio images. So I immediately assumed that she was talking about the HAL 9000 version of it, the movie 2001. And it turns out that someone has actually done a different version. And if you go on YouTube and type in Daisy TikTok, you will see all these compilation videos. It's a whole thread. It's a whole thread. So Caitlin and I are now going to perform the song. We are? Yeah, come on over. (laughs) So the fact that I know this song from Doc, (laughs) when I was able to teach her the words... So, Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, dear. I'm half crazy over the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage. I can't afford a carriage. But you'll look sweet upon the seat of a bicycle built for two. Hey! <laughs> Huge applause. Absolutely brilliant. That was so, uncanny. I feel like I've been back in the music halls of the Victorian <laughs> era. <laughs> uh, must we sing along? There's no obligation, as the people said. I love it. How fabulous. And that's on, and Daisy Daisy is trending on TikTok. I mean, it is trending on TikTok, and there are many YouTube <coughs> compilation videos of the TikTok trending, so you can, you can watch it yourself. It's, it's disturbing. <laughs> I am so glad I'm here to catch up on the, all the latest TikTok trends. Daisy Daisy, okay. <laughs> you, you wouldn't expect that 12-year-olds on TikTok would suddenly take this 1892 music hall song and make it their own, but it's, it's pretty... That was 1894. Uh, yes, 1894. <laughs> You've got a fact checker in the room. That's always good. Instant fact checker. What other songs right, so... from Doctor Who could be TikTok trends? The, the Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon. Oh, yeah. The, uh, there's the song from the King's Demons that, that you were talking about on the Nymon podcast, Jason. I was singing along. I actually learned that song for the keyboard, getting <laughs> it in the right key and everything. But my keyboard does not have a lute setting, so I had to use a much less satisfactory musical instrument to accompany. Uh, so, Mark, before this recording, you and I were playing a very exciting game of I'll show you mine if you show me yours. <laughs> and you we were uh... showing me your brand new vinyl version of the Myth Makers. Look at that. Mark's holding it up on screen now. And I don't have that. I don't even have a turntable, but here I've got my two earlier versions of the Myth Makers. So I've been a Doctor Who fan since late 1984, and I would have gotten the Myth Makers novelization when it came out, which I think was 85 or 86. 85. So this is the novelization. Oh, yes. I remember that. It is a gorgeous cover because you have the Trojan horse and you have a dematerializing translucent TARDIS at the bottom of the picture. But even as a 12-year-old who was so new to Phantom that I wasn't even aware the story was missing, I had the sense that reading the book, this was not what the TV story was like because the book is written in the first person and it's told by Homer who manages to go blind over the course of the book. So I got the sense this was not how it happened. So I enjoyed it, and it was funny, but I didn't feel like I'd experienced the Myth Makers. Yeah. 
then in the 90s, somebody came out with the online transcript uh, of the audio. So I read the online transcript in the 90s, one episode a day to give myself the serial feel. And when I got to the episode three cliffhanger, whoa to Paris, whoa to Troy. It's a bit late to say whoa to the horse. What kind of cliffhanger is that? That's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And then 20 years ago now, the audio CD came out, which I'm holding that up, but it's a much less impressive cover than the vinyl. But this is the original Peter Purvis narration. So I listened to this again over four days, and it's the story is terrific. It is very funny. And then when you get to part four, they suddenly pull the rug out from under you. So it's a really good listen. And now you can listen to the exact same tracks on vinyl, but with much better uh, cover art and, and design. So the last way that I experienced Mythmakers was the Loose Cannon Recon, which it's a good effort. The problem is they don't have any surviving source material from the story, except for, I think, two publicity shots and then some really grainy off-air footage on home 8mm camera, which may or may not be Maureen O'Brien's leaving scene. Uh, I'm not quite sure. So it's an odd way to experience the story because you're looking at photo composites, and I think for the sword fight, they actually just ported in footage from a 1960s movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like watching the loose canon of a story that exists by Kira Telesnap. You're watching a really rough reconstruction, and you're not getting a visual feel for the sets or the costumes. But I think the story... And I think both of you guys will agree the story is so good that it really doesn't matter how you experience it because the story is really funny and then it's really powerful and tragic. So even though we're missing almost all the video and the costumes and the sets, I think it's really one of the standouts of the Hartnell era, even in spite of all that we don't have. Yeah, I think if it existed, it would be held up as an absolute classic. It's it's so funny. The dialogue's so great. And like you say, that the line about, yeah, woe to the house of Priam, um, woe to the Trojans, woe to the horse, uh, that's, that is right on my street. I, I, love I was going to say, Mark likes his dad jokes. So yeah. <laughs> you must have been carried out on a stretch when you had that one. <laughs> you know, when people say about uh, when you wrote that line, you, you know, you can take the rest of the day off. That is, yeah. that is one of those lines, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely stood out. It definitely stood out. Uh, Mark, how did you? So, how did you rewatch it this time, or how did you listen to it this time? Or did you? Um, I, oh, I no, you, you got your vinyl. Of I course. listened to the you vinyl. Your beautiful new Demon Music Group. Ah, oh, vinyl, lovely. That's it. Yes, yeah, so it's the same content as the the CD, um, the Jason right. Shoners, um, but yeah, just sort of uh, printed onto these these vinyls. Um, so yeah, that was a, it was a nice experience. I think it's something about listening to sixty stories on vinyl with the sort of like the slight crackle and everything that's very yeah. very authentic to the era. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I did. I did take a look at the the loose cannon recons as well, uh, which obviously just highlights a few little kind of visual gags as well. When the doctor's got the, I mean, I assume this is from the episode. I don't know if it's something that the loose cannon people have made up, but when they've got the plan for the horse and it says Plan B Trojan horse written on it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's good. I hadn't noticed that. That's a good gag. Um, yeah, that, that's uh, that's fantastic. And, I, I, and also, it's worth saying the loose cannon recon. Like I, I think they're, I can generally, they're like you said, they're very rough, and I think they're quite old now. But like, they're, I find it, they're actually quite easy. Generally, anything with like just telesnaps or stills, 
and the soundtrack, I, can, I very quickly my brain puts it together. I think also with Doc Two, you're very used to putting it together yourself as well. Like genuinely, I think part of our brains when you watch Doc Two, you do sort of have to do so much, especially with very old stuff. You do have to do so much the imaginative work yourself. That I actually find it quite easy to watch Telesnap stuff. The only trouble with this loose cannon reconstruction was the. Um, yeah, and it's all done for free by fans, so there's no, you can't really complain. But like the soundtrack is very weird and very warped. Um, it sounds like it just it sounds like a record that's been left out in the sun. And, and just that was so. I think just having nice, clean music and nice, clean soundtrack is going to be gorgeous. Yeah, it, it does sound fantastic because um, the music's quite different on this. I think it's uh, Donald Cotton brought his collaborator from his radio plays over to do the music and. Um, what, what struck me that the fight at the start between Achilles and Hector it's almost like circus music um, which is kind of really um, underlies the um, you know the idea that it's, it's not really a serious fight is it that um, uh, neither of them know what they're doing and then um, yeah Achilles just stabs him when he uh, when he prostrates himself in front of uh, the doctor who thinks he's loose <laughs> It's and then the doctor just goes, "Don't kick a man while he's down." <laughs> <laughs> I'd love that. <laughs> and that's another thing about MythMakers that's frustrating. It was Michael Easton Smith's only story, so we don't know what visual flair or trickery he would have brought. We don't know how he was mixing his cameras. We don't know if he was doing any visual effects or compositions because you know michael imason comes along and does the arc a little bit later that same season and was doing tremendously inventive stuff michael ferguson came along with war machines was doing some very dazzling visuals we don't know how the story would have looked by direction i suspect given the acting and the writing and the music it was very inventive direction we'll just never know unless uh it manages to turn up mm. Yeah, um, that was, I mean, it's 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 gone up my uh, gone up my list definitely a few places in terms of the ones I'd like to to, to be returned. Uh, having listened to it this time, definitely um, the yeah, there's these great performances in there. Um, I think Agamemnon and Menelaus are so funny together, and those scenes really made me think. Like it was before Monty Python, but that's something like the Monty Python movies of putting like just modern day British people into like famous mythical situations um, and just have them talk like normal people about his wife and stuff like that when he's saying like I'm glad to see the back of her and all that kind of stuff about, about Helen um, that is all absolutely hilarious the because um, the, it starts I think that, that first fight like I say with um, Achilles and Hector they start speaking quite grandiosely and stuff and then it quickly just descends into none of them really want to be there um, the, <laughs> they've been there for 10 years so they're, they're absolutely sick of it all um, and and I guess given the life expectancy probably in those days as well, 10 years is a, uh, a much more significant portion of your life um, just spent either being besieged or laying siege to a city. I love the byplay between Odysseus and Achilles because you start off with Achilles as the action hero having the sword fight and then Odysseus shows up and just starts mocking him. So Achilles, as I have slain Hector. Hector lies dead at my feet. So Odysseus replies, you found him, you say, as he lay dying. And he refuses <laughs> to give credit to Achilles for yeah. any of the fight. 
And that was the sort of comedy you weren't getting on Doctor Who its first two seasons, where the characters are just mocking each other. And then episode two is all insults. Like, Stephen has this sword fight with Paris. Uh, uh, sorry, Priam. Neither one of them want to fight. And they're just, uh, you know, it's hilarious. I feel like all the older men are encouraging everybody else to go and fight, aren't they? <laughs> um, yeah. You've got Agamemnon saying to his brother, go and challenge Hector. Priam saying to Paris, go and fight Achilles because uh, he's killed Hector. Um, and he's like, nobody wants to do it, but they want everybody else to go and do all the fighting. Um, and the shade that they give to Cassandra as well is <laughs> he's brilliant in every scene that she's in. Oh, I'm, I'm quite curious. Like, I, I found this quite, I find historical, pure historicals, often quite difficult because it's not something that I'm interested in or know that much about. So I often find historicals really quite tricky. And I, um, and so I, 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 one question that made me really wonder is that, because I have to say, like, I, I obviously went, I'm terribly ignorant. I went through school and I, we, we seem to miss all this kind of, you know, the, the story. I think I was familiar with the literally the image in the story of the Trojan horse, but literally that was it. So, I, like, and even now, like, coming to this, it's like, it's sort of really not the, I know this is like a spoof, but I have to say, I, I've fully confessed, like, I, because I didn't really, I'm not that familiar with all the characters and the story of, of it anyway. I think I've probably missed out a lot in terms of, a lot, you know, because they've inverted a lot of the characters and they've done lots of kind of sort of spoofs on it. And it's just, it's just one of the things that's is a bit tricky. If you don't know the original, it's like, I didn't quite get the kind of spoof of it. And it just kind of got me thinking about, um, because cause, um, Donald Tosh and Donald Cotton obviously came in and this was a very conscious, um, we're going to do something new. And they were just, they, they sort of had, they, they had enough of what they felt was what they called childish science fantasy and wanted to do something more sophisticated and more what they call high comedy and, you know, with all these kind of references and stuff, which I, I totally get, but I'm afraid it's over my, a lot of it's just over my head because, like, I don't really have an awful lot of natural connection with history. And it makes me wonder, I wondered what, how I would have dealt with this as a kid because I just, I, I think, just this is just a personal taste thing. Like, I think, I, you know, I'm just waiting for the bits in the TARDIS or, or, you know, like a monster to show up. So it's, I, I have to admit, like, I find this quite a challenging watch for me because it's just not in my wheelhouse it's, it's just it's one of those things i didn't notice some of the i looked at some of the audience research at the time to see how it was received because i was like i felt kind of quite baffled by it and i was like, i don't know how you know as a six-year-old i wouldn't have made it through 10 minutes without wandering off you know um but um i, I just had to look at some of the audience re research at the time and then there were two major kind of audience uh, samples they did uh one i think was 176 uh, people um, and they, they generally generally kind of got a below average reaction um, some some people were confused that Mission to the Unknown hadn't been continued and thought they'd put the wrong episode out by mistake I mean, that, that was quite quite cute um, uh, some people sort of some people sort of found it a bit mediocre and the acting stagey and I think that's fair because um, the, the performances are really fruity and some people are giving some really strong character choices they're clearly having fun with it um, and some people are going for some really, especially, you know, um, Paris, uh, Barry Ingram's Paris, is going for a, he's going for like importance of being earnest or Jeeves and Worcester or something completely different. And, you know, it's really, I mean, that is, that is kind of huge fun, really. Um, but I think stagey is probably fair and it does feel theatrical. And I think both Donald's brought in a lot of this from their previous theatrical 
stuff. Um, but some people said they preferred historical to outer space stories as well. So there's um, there's a quote from Miss Jean Brodie. For people who like this sort of thing, this is the sort of thing they like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is the taste thing. Um, the other, there was another audience sample which did them um, slightly better, but they did say that the setting hadn't held the children's attention um, as much and there was a general desire to return to a Dalek storyline. So that was just the sort of feel at the time. But I think, I think to be fair, though, it, was, it wasn't much more common. I think in the 60s, you probably would have... These stories were probably closer to being told in schools and... Um, I mean, I think they probably just generally would have been more familiar, whereas now I, I, I feel, I, I don't know. So I just kind of wanted to ask you guys, like, through your, like, growing up, how, how would this have struck you as a kid? Like, what would you have known and what would you have had to piece together? This is a brand new adventure, do you know what I mean? I would have gotten the novelization first in 85, so I'm right. 11 going on 12 years old. I don't recall after all this time i expect that i already knew most of the story of the trojan horse i don't know how i would have learned it i don't remember if it was a lesson in school or if i got it from the history book but i knew enough of the story so that there were no real twists or turns i would have known about helen of troy i would have known about the face that launched a thousand ships i would have had an idea about achilles being uh, you know, a Greek god, so to speak, and I would have known about the Trojan horse stratagem. I will say that in American media, it is still a very well-known and often retold story. Mm. Mark and I were talking before recording about the movie Troy. I think it was uh, Wolfgang Peterson came out in 2004. It's like a four-hour historical sub-gladiator epic, and it's got an all-star with Brad Pitt as Achilles, but otherwise an all-UK cast. You've got your Sean Beans, your uh, Brendan Gleesons, uh, you've got your Eric Bana, who I think is Australian. It's a really strong cast, but the movie is so slow and ponderous that there's no joy to it, and there's very little humor. The version that I like, um, Clive Cussler, I don't know how popular he is in the UK. In the US, he is a or was a very well-known techno thriller writer who was kind of the inspiration and precursor to Tom Clancy. So Clive Custer would do mostly ocean-bound stories on ships, and every story was a what-if historical. What if Abraham Lincoln was not assassinated but was kidnapped instead? What if the Library of Alexandria was not burned but merely stolen and relocated? So he did a version of the Trojan War called Trojan Odyssey. And the what if is based on an academic theory that came out in the 80s or 90s by Professor Wilkins. And the theory is that the Trojan War took place in England during the Bronze Age. And eventually the survivors migrated to the Mediterranean and carried the stories with them which explains why all the characters in the Odyssey have red and gold hair, even though nobody in the Mediterranean is going to have hair that color. So it's an interesting theory, and Kussler, being an Anglophile, takes it as a you know triumph of um, British might and intellect and superiority, saying the Greek epics only work if they were British stories that were appropriated by the Greeks. That's the whole theory behind it. 
And it takes place in the modern day as the last descended survivors of some of the characters in the story are playing out their, their, their rituals 2,000 years later. I mean, it's, it's a stupid premise, and it's not very good prose because it's a techno-thriller aimed primarily at a right-wing American audience who likes that sort of thing. But it's well-told, and it gives you the facts of the Trojan War, and it spins it in a different way to make it just interesting enough to follow. Mm. So... Getting back to me at age 12, I know that I knew the story and I wasn't confused by it. But my question is, where is Helen of Troy? She's launched the war. Why is she not in the story at all? And by the same token, Cassandra, I believe, is not in the, the, the 2004 epic movie. So different versions of the story pick and choose which characters they want to focus on. Yeah, it's a little bit like last time, Jason, we talked about the legends of Camelot and how there's so many different versions of King Arthur and Knights of the Round Table thing. So you can sort of pick and choose the versions if you're making an adaptation of it, can't you? And I suppose it's um, it's quite similar with that as well, because this is coming from different source material, like the Iliad, Troilus and Cressida, the, the Shakespeare play and, <clears throat> and that type of thing. Because uh, I don't think Troilus and Cressida are in Troy the movie either. Uh, right, yeah, because um, uh, just based on my very minimal Wikipedia research last night, so the Odyssey, which was written like 800 BC by Homer, only pays very brief mention to the Trojan horse. It's the Aeneid, which is written 800 years later, which talks more about the Trojan horse. And then Troilus and Cressida is written, what, in the early 1600s and has an unhappy ending. This one mashes all the source material together, including the Shakespeare, and it gives Troilus and Cressida a happy ending by turning Vicky into hmm. Cressida. So even Donald Cotton is not doing this as a accurate, I want to tell it, you know, it is as it was historical. He is mixing and matching for yeah. maximum comedy. By the way, the music that plays when Vicky and Troilus have their first meet cute is hilarious. Like you say, the circus music, they're playing up the mushiness of these two teenagers falling in love with the most dramatic, over-the-top, almost <laughs> cornball music swelling on the soundtrack. How did you find Vicky's, uh, what did you make of that, Vicky's departure in this one? Um, I want to answer that first, and then I want to get Mark's opinion. So let's talk about the behind-the-scenes first. Ooh. So this was not the first broadcast story in season three, but it was the first story made for season three. The season three production block goes mythmakers to smugglers. So season two ends with Mission to the Unknown. Verity Lambert has had two incredible years as producer. She's taken this concept, turned it into a full show. We owe Verity Lambert everything, by the way. She's only had two script editors. She had David Whitaker for year one. She's had um, Dennis Spooner for year two. They were both terrific. Different tones, different styles, but she was telling all sorts of stories in Lime Grove D and making it work. She had Ian and Barbara for almost all of that time, and then she has two new companions at the back end of season two. Vicky and Stephen are a great pair. They have the brother-sister thing going on. They're both still active. Peter Purvis is terrific. Maureen O'Brien is terrific. Then they go on vacation, and you have the new team of Wiles and Tosh come in, and they say, okay, what we've been inherited is nice. We want to go in a different direction. So Maureen O'Brien comes back from vacation, and she's handed her first set of scripts for season three, and she's surprised to learn on the last page that she's been fired from the show and nobody bothered to tell her. 
if you had told me six weeks ago, she says, I could have not gone on vacation and found another job. Now, as it turns out, she's never been short of work for the rest of her life, and she was not harmed by the, the short-notice firing. But it's a horrible way to treat her. And then you take a character like Vicky, who gets along so well with the doctor, gets along so well with Stephen. The three of them have peak chemistry, and the time meddler is just one of my favorite stories because they're so good in it. Here, the script separates her out, so she gets almost zero time with the doctor and Stephen, apart from a few minutes in part one and like 30 seconds in part four. So you're not playing to the strengths of the cast, and then you're firing her. And after this, season three goes off the rails. The producer resigns halfway through. The script editor resigns halfway through. I think you had seven companions in nine serials between Mythmakers and Smugglers. For comparison's sake, I don't think we're at nine companions yet in the new series, which is already in year 17 on, on the calendar. So season three was a disaster. And the fact that so many stories are great is a testament to the format of the show rather than to the people who are making it. So I feel horrible for Maureen O'Brien having to do the story knowing that she's been fired for virtually no reason. And she's still doing a good job. She is sprightly. She is fun. She runs <laughs> off with trolls at the end. And it's almost touching. You know, She stays behind with him because she didn't want him to think that he, she had betrayed him. It's really good writing, and part four is really strong, and she gets a lot of the credit for that. But the way they treated the actress is almost unforgivable, and they almost destroyed the show in year three just from all these behind-the-scenes chaotic changes. We are lucky that we still have a show, thanks to what John Wiles and Donald Tosh were doing, if you think about it. Uh, so, Mark... Um, I've gone into, of course, a lot of behind-the-scenes, but if you're just watching this you know, as an isolated story and you're not paying attention to the behind-the-scenes stuff, how does Maureen O'Brien's performance play? How does how does the cast play for you when you're not taking into account all the behind-the-scenes Michigas? What, what I think is unclear, which occurred to me watching it this time, is, is how much Vicky remembers of these myths because when they first arrive, she says, oh, we're in, we're in Greece. Um, and obviously they know they're in the past because they've seen the, uh, the costumes of the people outside. She said, maybe I'll get to meet some of the heroes. So she's kind of aware that there's, that there's these heroes in Greek mythology, but she doesn't seem to show any, you know, as much as you can tell on audio, any recognition of the name Cressida or Troilus. Um, but it, it is nice that she she meets Troilus. Uh, it's not it's not a last minute thing. She does have a yeah. couple of episodes with him. They do spend some time together. Um, so so all that side of it is quite good. And I don't know. And see what you guys think. For me, I, I much rather this was her exit than I think uh, early talk of that she, that she would have gone the same way as Katerina in the Dalek Master Plan. Uh, that would have been awful for such a great companion. And somebody that, you know, we find out in this story is 16. Um, that, that, yeah, that would have been a horrific exit for her, definitely. Yeah, I have to say, Vicky is, 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 has been a relatively new one for me. To, like, it's, she's really, I've just seen lots of her stories lately. And our good friend, uh, friend of the podcast, uh, uh, Gallifrey Gothic, Jeff, um, is a big fan of Vicky. So I've kind of really watched her stories with a new eye. And I've got a total new appreciation for her. I love Vicky. She's so plucky. She's so, let's start a revolution. She's so fantastic. <laughs> and at the start of this story, in fact, I think she was my favorite thing about this story. I really, really enjoyed Maureen O'Brien and Vicky. 
Vicky in this story. Um, I love at the beginning, um, she's you know, when they think there's something in the TARDIS, she's, she gives Stephen a whacking great big spanner to hit it with. And it's like, she's always up for that kind of action. But even though she did get left behind, you stay behind in the TARDIS, you know, which was probably sort of very typical to happen to female companions. She, you, you can tell it is not her natural thing. She wants to go on adventure. Um, I really loved, uh, and like you said, uh, Jason, about the, the brother brother-sisterly relationship with Stephen, who's quite headstrong and sort of sarcastic, is a great foil to her because she can really hold her own. Um, and, and I agree with you, Mark. I think normally, you know, not you know, especially with such a go-getty character, the idea of like, oh, being married off is almost like the ultimate um, sort of brush off. Like Leela is sort of totally unforgivable mm. at the end of a story from nowhere saying, I'm going to get married. It's like, it, it just goes against everything. With this, actually, I think it was a bit more earned. Like this, the fact they, they seeded it through the first episode of Trawlers and Cressida and, you know, the, and, and she gets lots of scenes together. They're really good, actually. Her and the, I think James Lynn, who plays Troilus, the two of them are really good because that stuff can be super annoying. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, people sort of acting out their undying love on screen, love, you know, love struck scenes and all that. It can be a bit whatever but they do genuinely it's very sweet and I, I really was captivated by that and and I think and when she came when it came to Vicky leaving at the end I actually found that incredibly sad where she goes into the TARDIS and has a word with it bundles them into the TARDIS went oi you I want a word with you bundles them in there and you don't see what they talk about but they come out separately very sad and Vicky hugs the TARDIS I'm just like this is wonderful. And then at the end she says, you know, she she does sort of say, oh, we can build a new Troy. I was like, that does sound like Vicky. That does sound like that mm-hmm. revolution type thing. So she was a real joy for this. So it's been, yeah, she's my highlight of the, highlight of the story. And by, by coincidence, yesterday I got in the mail my Doctor Who Chronicles 1965 bookazine put up by DWM. So I hadn't ordered it from the UK because of the shipping delays due to COVID. I was finally able to cop, get a copy on eBay, which arrived literally yesterday. So I stayed up late last night reading it. So two comments. Number one, a meta comment. What is the core audience? What is the median age range of a DWM subscriber? I, it's I mean, be, clearly not, it's be not, not 12-year-olds. I would assume yeah. men like us. Yeah. Men in our yeah. Early 30s. Careful. Right? Be very careful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... I don't know about you guys. My vision started off bad due to my particular combination of uh, family genetics and um, due to my advancing years. DWM and the Chronicles are written in microprint in double columns. And it is a – now, if your magazine is being aimed at 11-year-olds who have the vision to read that sort of thing, Mazel Tov, bless you. This is a magazine primarily aimed at fans of a certain age. Who is going to be able to read this print? And then it's uh, – you know. Each page has a pattern background, so some of the pages you need, like you know, a magnifying glass to read. All right, that's that's my editorial. I am a hundred percent here for an old man round. I'm totally with you on this one. Also, I'd like all my food pureed as well, please, while I'm reading Doctor Magazine. And get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Insert insert the, the uh, GIF of uh, Clint Eastwood from the movie uh, Grand Torino uh, scowling at the teenagers. Um, other than that, it's a it's a great issue. There's a lot of terrific material. I I highly suggest you read it with a magnifying glass. But there's an interview with uh, Maureen O'Brien in it, and um, it's it's mostly cobbled together from an older DWM interview that she did in 2006. She kind of gives the character short shrift, and she's frustrated, saying she wasn't given enough to do. And yes, 
as Conrad alludes, she starts the Mythmaker staying behind on the TARDIS because she had sprained her ankle in Galaxy 4, which you would never have a female companion stranded in the TARDIS today with a sprained ankle, especially now that we have a female doctor and hopefully another female doctor coming down the chute after this one. Uh, but I think Maureen O'Brien sells herself short because I was... I did the entire Vicky run back in November and December, uh, which is when I got to it in my pilgrimage, so not even nine months ago. And Vicky gets something interesting and creative to do in every story. She insults Caesar Nero in Latin. She tries to poison Caesar Nero. She starts a revolution on um, the planet Xeros during the Space Museum. Uh, uh, in Galaxy 4, she names the, the Chumbly, uh, she names the Zarbi Zombo. She's funny. She always brings an interesting, revolutionary, energetic, funny take to the character. And I, I was also reading uh, the Japanese novel Battle Royale at the same time over the winter. I don't know if you guys have read that. It's incredible. It's the original Hunger Games, which Hunger Games was likely stolen from. So Battle Royale is... Um, a class of, I think, 42 Japanese 14-year-old middle school students who have been kidnapped by a fascist government. And they've been put on an island and they're being monitored and they have to kill each other until there's only one survivor who's then given whatever he wants for the rest of his or her life. There's a character, there's a female character in Battle Royale, and I won't say who so as not to spoil the surprise, who turns out to be basically a serial killer. And she really gets into the games and just starts killing her classmates in sadistic ways. Oh yeah, I shouldn't be telling the story with my 11-year-old on the other side of the camera, should I? <laughs> but as I was, as I was reading this while watching Vicky go through the revolution and um, doing all the stuff she does, you know, trying to poison Nero... What if Vicky was a 14-year-old serial killer who was really the bad guy in the rescue all along, <laughs> but traveling with the doctor suppresses her and reigns her in, and she becomes a chaotic evil or chaotic good uh, companion? That is total headcanon. It's not, it's not really there in the episodes unless you're stretching and reading Battle Royale at the same time. But I want to say Maureen O'Brien was given terrific material as Vicky throughout, and she might not have been happy in the role, and she might have done much better things later in life, and she has. But I think Vicky's a really strong companion, so that's another reason why Mythmakers is upsetting, because just firing her the way they did is not justified by the quality of work that she was doing before that. I'm yeah. with you on that one. And I think Harnell had, a, by all accounts, had a tough time on this. Uh, by the sound of it, but I think principally because, again, like you said, going away on holiday and coming back to find Verity Lambert gone mm -hmm. and John Wiles very much installed and like lots of new. And, and I think bringing in Donald Tosh as a story editor, then brought in Donald Cotton as a writer, who then brought in lots of people they'd worked with before. So I think a lot of it came, it must have been very disorientating for him. And you know, the responsibility of this this show which you know when he went into it he had no idea it'd be this big and so now he's like this this part and this whole show is way bigger than so he the responsibility on his shoulders he must have really felt like he had to protect this show and like i think this in this story i think once vicky goes he's the last connection the only thing left to the start of the show so it must have been quite lonely and like he just had a bad time I know he had a bereavement he had an injury he was ill there was a, there was I think there was some friction between him and some of the very larger than life characters that were you know obviously 
having a blast. And so he, I could, I can really see. And then, then Maureen O'Brien being let go, like his feathers must have been really ruffled. But to his credit, you can't tell. It looks like he's having a whale of a time. Like it's, it's really good to see that professionalism and dedication, even though he was clearly really going through a bad time. It, none of it shows. You just get his delight and his giggling at the Trojan horse, and it's all wonderful. So good on him for yeah, stepping up. Conrad raises a really good point. Think about what happens to Hartnell in season three, because Wiles tries to fire him. Tosh tries to fire him. They literally try to write him out at every opportunity. And most of the bad stories, most of the Billy Hartnell behaving badly as a racist story has come from Donald Tosh, if you think about it. And that really gets its origin here, as they have ever more convoluted explanations for why he didn't appear on camera with uh, Max Adrian, who plays Priam. Now, it was scripted that way with Hartnell on vacation, so they were never going to be in the same scene. But now there are all these stories, oh, we had to rewrite the story to keep them apart, even though they had worked together in the past. And Tosh has very sinister, you know, they said it was anti-Semitic or homophobic, the reason he didn't want to be in the same room as Max Adrian, which can't be true because they were colleagues in the past. But in the bookazine, um, Jessica Carney is quoted from her biography of her grandfather, and she basically says Hartnell was afraid they were bringing in Max Adrian, a big-name comedy actor, to replace him. And that ends up being a very founded fear because Wiles and Tosh spend the next six months trying to fire him and replace him. And of course, by the end of season three, he's the last casualty of season three. He is fired at the end of the year, somewhere in between War Machines and Smugglers. And when season four starts, he comes back basically as a guest star on what is now the Patrick Troughton show. He does one episode mm-hmm. in production season four, and then he's put into an early retirement. So as poorly as he was treated, as guys Conrad said, it all starts here. He comes back from vacation to the most rude awakening of his life. He is so funny in this story, and he's mm-hmm. so in his element in the comedy, playing off Agamemnon, who was uh, the guy who was in Keys of Marinus, and playing off um, Odysseus. You would never know that he was having the dream job turned to dust before his eyes on set. You would never know that it was happening. No. Because, as Conrad says, Hartnell is so good in the material. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about watching season 18 earlier, and you know Tom would have had a similar, it was clearly having going through a similar thing of, oh no, this show that's mine is now crumbling around me and everything's leaving and going. But you you can see that disquiet on camera, but you can't see it through Hartnell, I think. It's mm-hmm. interesting. How about you, Mark? How did you find it? I think um, as well, like you're saying, he's gone through, through a hard time with everything. I think as well, it was during the film of this that he got his diagnosis as well of... Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right, but it's arterial cellulosis. And yeah. that was, it sort of made sense of why he was struggling to learn his lines and, and to, you know, because he'd been the consummate professional up to that point. He'd been very impatient with people who he felt weren't prepared enough. Um, but now that, you know, he was struggling with that as well. So, yeah, it's, it's just an awful time for him all around, really. Um, and you mentioned his bereavement. I think it was his auntie that basically raised him. And yeah. he couldn't go to the funeral because um, the filming schedule didn't allow, which would be, which would have been, uh, you know, really awful as well for him. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, you, you that's going to be very difficult. Him. And there's a cast full of big personalities, all very, very jocular and joking and slightly taking the piss. And and also, like this story was supposed to be, you know, they wanted it to be a new, different direction. Mm. So this is a very different style. Like, you know, Barry Ingram's performance, like beaming in from a completely different production. <laughs> it's like it's a really bold choice. It's really funny in this. But it must have been very disconcerting to see all the other cast members 
sort of joking and spoofing on something that he, he was clearly so terrified and passionate about. Mm. It's, um, I can really sympathise. I think that must have been incredibly difficult um, to work with. But it's like you said, it's, um, it's, it's wonderful. It doesn't show up on screen at all. He's like, he's just having, he looks like the doctor looks like he's been having the time of his life. So what is that? What is his suggestion of the catapult? Where does, I was just like, where, what? I mean, it's incredible. It gives you those really, really funny scenes where the, you know, the guys just like, you know, in that case, you, you, you know, you, in that case, you can be in it. And there's like, that we know that we know Hartnell can do from the Aztecs. It's like, oh, Coco, we're now engaged, and you know, he's yeah. great at doing those. You know, he really takes the Mickey out of the Doctor, being this kind of grumpy old figure, and then getting the rope pulled out under him. But why on earth was he suggesting? Like, what did? Was he just trying to sort of distract them with something really silly? What? What was that it's about? It's a brilliant image, yeah. isn't it? That that Hartman would be clinging on to the back of a giant paper aeroplane that was catapulted <laughs> over the world, and then when Odysseus says, um, "Well, I've built a catapult, <laughs> so I'll just fire you over without the paper aeroplane," because yeah. um, he uh, Odysseus, well, I'm just gonna say. I think he's one of the, I mean, there's loads of great performances in this, but the way he switches from that jocular, mocking, you know, he seems like he's, he's just having a laugh, to suddenly become very threatening and fierce. Those scenes, uh, those scenes are great, you know, when he, 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 just, he just flips um, a couple of times and, and becomes really chilling. Uh, I think he's, he's terrific. The catapult scene sets up <clears throat> the joke where Odysseus doesn't know the word and thinks it's an insult. I must try that out on Agamemnon. Yeah. Catapults <laughs> to you, my lord. It's yeah. yeah. funny wordplay. But yeah, uh, Mark has a point there about it. In part four, which I want to talk about in a little more detail when we get there, he suddenly becomes this amoral, cynical, brutal killer. And the doctor has been charmed by him up till this point, just cuts him loose, is callous to him, just you know, ignores him, and then takes off in the TARDIS in front of him. And Odysseus has been a staunch atheist throughout the entire piece. And suddenly he realizes, wait a minute, <clears throat> the doctor may have been Zeus all along. I was talking to Zeus the whole time, and I didn't even believe it. <laughs> it's an interesting character arc that Odysseus gets in the last week of the serial. <laughs> Yeah, and, and yeah, like you say, episode four. Because um, I think the position of this is interesting. You've just had Mission to the Unknown, as you were saying, Conrad. People were tuning in and expecting to see the continuation of a, of a Dalek story um, in which everyone was killed in that or turned into a Varga plant. Um, and then this one, it comes in, it's very light, um, it's funny, everything's un- undercut um, about, you know, these heroes and, and their great deeds and everything and in episode four it just all goes to shit and even um even steven is is very very badly injured uh, you know the sword fights have, haven't really been serious up to that point there, there's been like you say in the first episode there's more talking than fighting um and then everyone is just slaughtered vicky's left uh and then yeah it's um it's it's pretty brutal, isn't it? And then into the Dalek master plan after that as well, in which um, <laughs> uh, although there are sort of comedy episodes, um, it's you know what happens to a lot of the characters is pretty grim as well. And the point that Rob Shearman makes in Running Through Carter's Volume One: <clears throat> after you survive twelve weeks of Dalek's master plan, and after everyone is killed off in Episode Twelve, 
you then get the very cheerful, heartwarming <laughs> caption. Next episode, War of God. <laughs> you know, enough. Stop. I'm tired of war. I'm tired of the whole thing, Robert Heerman says. But this was a very dark uh, time for the show. I have this idea that I'll probably never carry out, but you know how there are certain podcasts that will examine a movie minute by minute? So there's a podcast that does Star Trek II minute by minute. Bill Evenson, who's been on this show before, does a minute by minute of the Frankenstein Universal movies from the 30s. You could do a really interesting, I think, 25-episode limited podcast just breaking down part four of Myth Makers, the Horse of Destruction, minute by minute. Because, you know, the first minute is the opening credits and the recap. The first four minutes after that continue on with a light comedy. And then at minute five, once Vicky realizes the horse has come inside, everything gets dark. Many characters are killed off. Cassandra is, well, we know what happens to her in real life. That's implied. A lot of the Trojan characters die. Vicky uh, leaves in a very sad fashion. Stephen is almost left for dead, mortally wounded, and you end, I think for the first time, you end on a cliffhanger. This character might not survive into the next serial. And then we're introduced to Katerina, who, according to the DWM bookazine, was actually scripted to have a line in this episode prophesying her own death, which was cut for time. Um, and then she leaves. But at this point, Adrian Hill had already filmed her death scene in the next story that was pre-filmed yeah. before this went to the studio. So everything about part four is freighted with doom. And you get this funny historical comedy that suddenly gets dark in a way that nobody would have been expecting because that just wasn't what Doctor Who was doing in 1965. And then for the next four months after that, for the rest of the Wiles Tosh era, it gets darker and suddenly companions get killed off two in a row and these terrible things happen. And then you have the massacre, which is the most downbeat nihilistic story of all time. Mark, you and I covered the massacre, I think, last year. We did the vinyl for that. And then when Innes Lloyd and Jerry Davis comes in, things starting to lighten up a little bit. But this is the beginning of a really difficult set of stories. They're all great, but they're all really hard to watch between this, mm -hmm. Master Plan, Massacre. It's going to get really, really depressing and grim. Definitely, yeah. the The first three episodes really are a bit of a an oasis, aren't they? In the in the middle of it all, um, but yeah, they uh, they just kind of lull you into a false sense of security, and then and then pull it away. Um, one of the things uh, I thought about this is in the third episode when um, Vicky and Stephen are in prison, and uh, Stephen sort of says to Vicky, "Like you need to, you need to think of a way of, of solving this because the doctors in the Greek camp." And he's trying to figure a way to, um, to yeah. breach the walls of Troy. And it doesn't really sort of come to anything, but I thought what a great idea for a story to have the Doctor and a companion on two different sides using their own knowledge of history to, to aid the side, you know, even, even if they don't know necessarily that they're against each other. It's kind of floated here and then nothing really comes of it because Vicky doesn't really play any part in it. She doesn't, because she's so dismissive of the wooden horse idea, <laughs> she doesn't warn them warn them about it she just goes ah no it's just just a story it's just a myth um so yeah that was that was an interesting little sort of tantalizing thing the way the story could have yeah. gone which would have been really cool it did remind me a little bit of like the time warrior in that respect i remember thinking like oh, that was that was an, an instance i could see of the doctor and the companion oh, being yeah. sort of put on put on different sides it's a good it's a good way of doing it um 
Yeah, good fun. Can I also, I just have to have one of the few things, this, like you said, Jason, there were so few photographs and so clips, there was so few clips. Um, it was great to see the, the model of the Trojan horse, which is bloody amazing like i can't see how what scale they've made it to but it looks fantastic and that sort of sort of thing i'm you know as one of those kids who'd just been i just need some sort of spectacle or something otherwise it's just people in sheets talking and as a kid i'm just like i'm not interested literally i just look uh, my, my thing with a lot of historicals is like this would be fine i just need a mandrel to come bursting in <laughs> and just just for a scene and then go off again and i'll be like fine um uh, but uh, yeah, but I really, really enjoyed the spectacle of seeing that Trojan horse. I think it's it's a beautiful model. Apparently, it was only made in like a week, um, and, and it's fantastic. It's really beautiful. So that was a that was a real joy for me watching this. And it's great because we were talking about the movie Troy. This is so much more impressive than the horse in the movie Troy, um, because as the doctor talks about the fetlocks, like the fact that they've put the time to give the horse um, like a mane and everything like that, um, yeah. which don't don't add anything. <laughs> and I love the, the doctor's line about, oh, if you give me another day, I could have fitted some shock absorbers. <laughs> That's brilliant. That is proper funny. Really good. Really good. It's great. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah the, the, the scenes of him in the Trojan horse, that's just too fun. You know, his doctor is so like that, so mischievous. And yeah. That's yeah, great. I'd love to have seen, seen those scenes. Um, yeah, that would have been, uh, in particular, I mean, I'd love to see it all. But yeah, the um, uh, them all sort of crouched inside the belly of the wooden horse, arguing with each other, looking out of little, um, little holes. Pete Pulse, yeah. Wood, yeah. I love that. <laughs> So there's a story that I read. I don't know exactly how true it is, but Donald Cotton wanted all four episode titles to be comedic. So um, Mark is Mark. Can I just say for the benefit of the listeners, uh, Mark is now grinning from ear to ear because there's more des- there's dad jokes coming. So Mark's out. Oh, there Sorry, are dad jokes coming in spades. Talk and, us uh, through it, Jason. Talk us through it. So episode two is small profit quick return which is also a chapter title in the book i did not get that joke when i was 11 or 12 it is hilarious it's really funny so what i am told i think part three was supposed to be called doctor in the horse which is a play on doctor in the house but uh after small profit quick return i think probably tosh says to uh, cotton you can't do that it's too funny. It's not in keeping with the show. So part three was then retitled Death of a Spy, which is a very bland, vanilla title. But let's talk about that for a moment. The part two cliffhanger is, I think Stephen and or Vicky are there declaimed as spies. And then they're imprisoned. And then you see over the screen the caption, next episode, Death of a Spy. This is teasing that one of them is going to get killed. Instead, the character who is killed is an actual spy, Odysseus' Cyclops, who doesn't speak a word. That character is not in the novelization. In the novelization, that character's turn is taken by Homer, the narrator, who ends up becoming a Cyclops halfway through and then loses his other eye at the end of the story. Spoiler alert, Homer goes goes blind. Um, But the character of Cyclops is played by Tootie Lemkow, who was in several classic Doctor Who stories, and every single story that he was in is missing. He's in Marco Polo, gone. He's in The Crusade, gone. 
He was choreographer for Celestial Toymaker Part 3, Gone. He's in Mythmakers, Gone. And also his character doesn't say a word, but the episode is named for him. Now, flash forward six years, you've got the big screen production of Fiddler on the Roof, which is my people's musical, three hours long, gorgeously shot, terrific music. I know all those songs by heart. The character of the Fiddler himself was played by the same guy, Tootie Lemkow. Again, does not say a word in the whole picture. So this guy was all, I mean, he was, we could see him in Raiders of the Lost Ark at the end of his life. This guy basically made a career of being title characters who don't get to speak. <laughs> That's a good gig. Nice work if you can get it. Yeah. Really nice work if you can get it. <laughs> Fabulous. I think the original title for episode one was uh, Zoo Sex Machina. Which obviously it works slightly better written down that one as well, doesn't it? But, uh, Mark, that's in the novelization to too. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, chapter two in the novelization. Yeah. But I, think, yeah. I wrote that down in my notes, and I thought I don't need to say that. Mark, because <laughs> he, he there goes ASX Maxim. It nearly quite Z Z. It doesn't quite work. It doesn't quite scan, but it's yeah. it, it works. Reads, it book. reads well. It reads well. Yeah, uh, I suppose. Yeah, an episode title, if it had been flashed up on the screen or reading it in the book, um, it works. But Horse of Destruction is a great episode <laughs> title as well. It's um, it's a proper Doctor Who one, but you, instead of. Uh, you know, kind of some kind of alien monster name or something like that. Horse of Destruction is great. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the the humor in this one uh, appealed to me a lot. Yeah, and there's also like the, you know some of the jokes in there are pretty tasty as well. There's a couple of jokes. Um, we know what, is, it, is it Cassandra is saying that she dreamt you know that there was lots of soldiers fall, falling upon her with swords and yeah. someone's like, oh, I don't think we need any help interpreting this one. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. quite. Uh, <laughs> Oh. Really is quite. Uh, I can imagine it looks like the adults laughing, the kids being nonplussed. Um, and then, then, so then he, then someone else describes it as a, as nervous as a bacante, a nymph, um, at her first, um, you know, at her first orgy. It's like kind of mention of orgy in Doctor Who is like what you can't even imagine that it's sort of in universe. Like how can that even exist? Like where would that? Where does that exist in their minds? You know, I don't. I don't want to know. I don't want to think about Doctor Who. Think about. And then the woe to the horse as well. So like, there are some big old gags in this one. Um, and, and the rest of the dialogue is, uh, you know, where where is an outright joke when when I think Paris calls Cassandra, yeah, fortune teller of notorious unreliability. Just that really. <laughs> Beautiful sort yeah. of dialogue, isn't it? Of uh, yeah, and then her reaction to that, she's like, "How dare you!" She is going for it. Her vocal performance. She is going. She's made a choice, and she's going. She's riding that bus. I like. I respect that. But apparently, the uh, the actor tried to distance herself from the role afterwards. She she contacted the Radio Times and said, "Don't don't credit me in this." Which. Uh, huh. I don't know why she would because it's um, I mean it's a great story and a, and a perfectly good performance so I don't know why she was embarrassed by it so I want to do a quick read through of the novelization chapter titles because some of these are just really precious ah, do 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 right. this is great so I'm going to do it slightly out of order because some of these are, are, are matching puns so uh, Zeus Ex Machina we've talked about Zeus Ex Machina right before and after that Homer remembers Hector forgets <laughs> nice and then four and five enter Odysseus exit the doctor six a rather high T seven <laughs> this is a tough one I think we need Conrad skills for this one seven Agamemnon arbitrates I am not saying that wow amazing <laughs> well done well done 
Eight, an execution is arranged. Nine, here's another pun. Temple Fugit. <laughs> Ten and eleven, the doctor draws a graph. Paris draws the line. <laughs> Twelve, if, if I could capture Conrad's facial expression. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 Mark's, Mark's life is laughing his head off. I'm just groaning and shaking my head. Hashtag dad jokes. Uh, Twelve is small profit, quick return. That was episode two. Thirteen is war games compulsory. I don't know if that's a deliberate pun on the war games, but it's there. Fourteen, single combat. Fifteen, speech, speech, with exclamation points. That's great. Sixteen, the Trojans at home. Seventeen, Cassandra claims a kill. Eighteen, the ultimate weapon. That's pretty boring. Nineteen, a council of war. 20, Paris stands on ceremony. 21, dungeon party. And 22, I didn't get I'm sorry. 22. Okay, never mind. <laughs> sorry, what was that? So dungeon party, I just woke up. I was like, what is dungeon that? Dungeon party, yeah. I let's not ask, let's move on. Yeah. Well, Priam's has that line where he says, we're going to put you in the dungeons. And he goes, but don't worry, they're really nice. Sometimes I, I sit down there I myself. Down and myself. <laughs> it all gets too much for me, <laughs> no. yeah. Uh, 22 I didn't get until two years later when I saw a high school production of um, The King and I. So 22 is Hull Low Young Lovers. Oh, my God. Somebody quickly screenshot uh, (laughs) (laughs) before we lose the facial expression there on Conrad. I'll say it again. Hull Low Young Lovers. Unbelievable. Oh, my sides. Um. But that is great. That's really fun. Like especially because target novels often have that, you know, escape to danger and all those the ones we know and love. So it's really fun to have. And also, I suppose you know this this whole story is called the Myth Makers, and you don't you know. I'm not sure whether that alludes to the characters or the Doctor and Vicky and everyone turning up and you know changing it. But it's um, yeah, it's really fun. Like you know, a story about stories and stuff. So so I think things like the novelization really take that like being able to really play with the form of the story is really good. It's good stuff. And then Donald Cotton would use that same trick. When he wrote The Gunfighters, he narrates it by Ned Buntline, the, the Western journalist. And then The Romans is done as a full-on, uh, it's just a, it's a bundle of letters and journal extracts and poems. That's right, yeah. Really, really fun inventive. It's really good stuff, you know. So I, w- I won't do all the rest, but chapter 24 is Doctor and the Horse. Uh, 25 is A Little Touch of Hubris, which I'm sure is a song, a song title from somewhere. <laughs> and then 27, Armageddon and after, which begs the question, how can there be any after to Armageddon? But there it is. That's fun. Top, top story titles. I love that. It is a highly recommended book. The cover art is gorgeous. I like the yellow spine. Hunt down the original Myth Makers if you can. Or come to my house and I'll read it to you. They, um, yeah, look, looking at the covers before, they all use the horse, don't they? It is a, like the the image from the story. Um, yeah. Are you saying, Conrad, it's it, it, it's the point when it gives you some spectacle? Um, I guess if the episodes still existed, the sword fights, maybe there's probably a sword fight in every episode that might have might have been a bit exciting for kids. Um, but yeah, I can yeah. I take you know your uh, your point from earlier that uh, that there's not a lot to uh, to, to keep kids' attention. Along in the yeah. Plus, okay. witty, witty wordplay. I guess it's not as exciting for your average six-year-old in the audience. <laughs> no, not hiding behind yeah. the sofa because of wordplay. Yeah. I'm still like that now. I don't, my taste, my, t- my tastes haven't changed. I'm just like I'm waiting for a monster. 
less talking, more fights, more monsters. Anyway. It's funny because I find the- with Twitter as well, if I put like a, fu- a really funny, clever pun on there, it gets nothing. But like I've put a picture of, of my dogs on there, it gets loads of attention. It's crazy. It's like the whole world's upside down. That's right, Mark. <laughs> Yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna make some a really bad pun. Unfortunately for you guys, I forgot. I've forgotten it. <laughs> oh yeah, that's uh, that's what I was gonna say. So Russell T Davies gets that the historical has to have a goofy monster in it. So when Russell T Davis and then later on Moffat gives us the, it's always a pseudo historical with a silly monster in it. So. Like, even Vincent and the Doctor has a monster in it. I mean, so nowadays, this would have been a pseudo-historical, and there would have been some goofy, slavering, slobbering alien trying to get over the walls, or, you know, the horse would have been, you know, a Tesselecto or something like that. There would have been some sci-fi twist. The Cyclops would have been... the day for the new series. Yeah, I think it's the Cyclops would have been the monster. You could have brought the... Um the Jaggeroth in or something and that would have been the, uh, the this is this is all now this story is now ramping up <laughs> I'm loving the Trojan horse opens and the f- hordes of mandrels spill out I love <laughs> yeah. that the, yeah. the Jaggeroth I mean this is I, I'm like already bing 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 I'm now <laughs> much more on board Cyclops is one of the 12 splinters of Scaroth oh and he's God. collecting all these priceless treasures and putting them in the sand so Schliemann can find them in uh, 2500 years time and send him to Paris. This yes. is good. This is good stuff, guys. New showrunner. They're looking for a new showrunner. I think this is our moment. <laughs> Big finish. Tell this story. Get Julian Glover to record the Mythmakers as Scarab. <laughs> a monster in every episode. Guaranteed. That would be my... Sh- as a showrunner thing, that would be my pitch. The Mandrill Invasion of Troy. <laughs> oh, music to my ears. <laughs> So the, so the doctor's the, the, the Trojan horse idea it, that is that that's that's a, a paradox, isn't it? Because he's he's only suggesting it because he heard the story based on these events. So it's one of those circular things, isn't it? Bootstrap paradox. Thank you. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, because it, it's, it's it's that I really like that idea that they they're all really dismissive of it. They're like, no, you <laughs> yeah. must have made that up. <laughs> it's uh, it's just a story. It's crazy. Um, yeah, and the doctor's trying to find like, any other way of doing it, isn't he? <laughs> other than doing that um, <laughs> yeah. until he until he gives in. So yeah, that's um, that's a really nice idea that they're they're trying to trying to avoid doing that. I suppose that's how far the um, the series has come, even since uh, the Aztecs and things, where it's like you can't change history, not one line. Whereas uh, he's basically doing what the monk was uh, was up yeah, to. Yeah, he stage, really is. Isn't he? He's yeah. really getting involved and uh, making things happen and, and changing things. And that really suits William Hartnell's doctor because he's so mischievous. Like at the end of the Rome, where he's like, he's, you know, he's like, oh, you can't blame me for that. You know, it's, it's a Roman sort of fun. And he's like, oh, maybe it is. And laughs his head off. I love that. And that's, like, it really is, because it it's a really different age back then. And the idea of making a grandfather a lead character for kids, because, you know, people like a crazy grandfather. That, that seems sort of quite dated now. Like, you wouldn't do that now. But like, people, you imagine these kids must have really loved him for that anarchic mischievous streak mm. he's brilliant Hartnell. I really, I'm really re-enjoying a lot of his stories again now and my favourite new series doctor Peter Capaldi deliberately does a lot of the Hartnell mannerisms when he was introduced in that special he's gripping his lapels as he walks out on stage but in his penchant for constantly making jokes 
I think he is channeling a little bit of his own inner William Hartnell because he would have seen these episodes as they went out and he would have had I mean he was a huge fan of the show during the Pearl era he probably came of age as a fan during the Hartnell time and this would have been a conscious influence on him so in that sense Hartnell is a gift that still keeps on giving because there are still Hartnell imitations to this day Sacha Dewan did one in series 12 so we have Hartnell to thank for all for all these gifts, and we're still getting him in the new series. But to go back and listen to him, even though, as Conrad says, he's having a terrible time, he's so good on camera and so good with the dialogue and the comedy that uh, it's so fresh. You would never know that this is a guy whose life is being you know destroyed out from under him at the same time once the cameras stop rolling. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. And the DW the DWM uh, write up in, in the 1965 Chronicles literally mentions Mark the bootstrap paradox in its write up for this story. So they literally mention that they they read your mind. Yeah, I I didn't think to read that. I've got that magazine and I, I read um, about time and the complete history uh, to get rid of this podcast and um, ah. it didn't occur to me to read for some reason the 1965 Chronicle. I'll flick through it, but I yeah I haven't read the um, specifically the Mythmakers stuff. So I will go and seek that out next. Oh, Get out your like... magnifying glass, your your reading glasses, <laughs> yeah. maximum magnification. Mark's sure. young; he doesn't. He just sits there laughing. If you can, he just. The trouble is, Mark just has to wipe away the tears in his eyes from laughing at his latest pun, um, and then he might be able to read something. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, for, it's actually really interesting to hear what people, what different research, especially for a story like this where you can't just put the, the DVD on. So I went for I got uh, my good friend Cy Hart to to, to find the Doctor Who magazine, uh, the uh, the archive, the Andrew Pixley archive, and. I didn't have that magazine, so I was sort of looking on my iPad at photo, like photos of an archive. Um, but you know, Andrew Pixie's you know, good stuff. I actually also listened to a couple of good podcasts that are probably worth mentioning and maybe putting in the show notes. I listened to the Missing Episodes podcast about it um, with uh, Toby Haydock in it, which is really interesting. And Toby's obviously got a lot of knowledge about the character, the actors, and the or what they were bringing to the role. So that's really interesting. I also gave the flight to entirety a spin, and they're all so clever. They've heard of all. They get all of these classic references. They're like, well, obviously, everyone knows the story that Cassandra did this. So the fact she did this is hilarious. I'm like, really? I didn't. I have no idea. So if you want to feel really stupid or really clever, if you know there aren't references, listen to Fly Through Entirety. But yeah, there's a couple of good podcasts out there about it. And I read my blog post, uh, Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels at WordPress from 2013, which was my first and <clears> failed <throat> attempt at the pilgrimage. I'm having much better success on Twitter now that I'm not doing a long forum blog post for each story. But I was looking at my entry for The Myth Makers, which is now eight years old, and I'm reminded, I was, uh, in 2013, I watched Doctor Who and the Daleks, the movie, in between seasons two and three. And Barry Ingham, the last thing that Barry Ingham did before Doctor Who was Doctor Who. He plays Aladon. And the way that Doctor Who and the Daleks is filmed, he has, you know, the gold hair, the the makeup, he's covered in glitter. Basically, he's playing that movie as an extra from a Kesha video. He's a backup dancer <laughs> in a Kesha video. And, and, and my joke that I made on my blog post is Barry Ingham is so sick of having to play out on that way in the movie that he calls his agent and goes, Get me something else to do. <laughs> Baby, I've got the part for you. You're going to be playing Paris, Prince of Troy. <laughs> Great. Where am I playing it? Oh, 
Have a seat first. <laughs> <laughs> so he's doing back-to-back Doctor Who in the same year. Uh, the movie is filmed in March and April. This probably was shot over the summer. So who knows if he worked wow. in between. But he brings a very different vibe to Aladon than he brings to Paris, as Conrad does earlier. So you're seeing his range if you watch both of those things back-to-back. Yeah. Actually, it would have been funny if he played Aladon like as camp as he played Paris. That would have <laughs> maybe been a better match. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, I would second that. I'd uh, recommend both those podcasts that you mentioned, Conrad, and Jason's blog. And also, I'm sure the Crinoid podcast has done the Myth Makers um, probably a couple of years ago. Um, so that's well worth listening to as well. And Cy Hard is right now in the middle of a good run on Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Joe Ford podcast that we've all been on. And anything that Cy does is a, is a must listen. Agreed. Definitely, definitely check that out as well. I'll put links in the show notes to all of those. Um, so uh, you mentioned your Twitter handle, Jason. Uh, Conrad, where can our listeners find you? Yes, I'm at hair of the hound underscore on Twitter. That's great. And you can follow the podcast at trap1 underscore and find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Whoa, to Paris. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs>